Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Hey, we're so grateful for you folks that are able to join us in the room. And of course, most of you are online right now. And we have people, of course, around the city, across the nation, around the world. So let's give them a big shout. It's a small shout, folks, because we got a small crowd. That's just the way it is. And uh, we want to greet our campuses. We've got North End, Bronx Park, and Niverville joining us right now. Let's give them a big shout. All right, that's more like it. All right. Okay, so today I'm carrying on in the series that began a couple of weeks ago called Brave New World, and we've been looking at this concept that I'm borrowing from Aldous Huxley's book. He wrote it in 1932 by the same name, Brave New World, and he looked at and, and wrote a dystopian novel about the future in the year 2540, a time when people were genetically engineered, socially indoctrinated, and pharmaceutically anesthetized, and they were allowed to pursue whatever carnal pleasure they want, but they came at a very dear price of their freedom, their individuality, and their privacy. And my thesis has been that we have arrived there 500 years ahead of schedule. You know, I know many of you know who Jordan Peterson is. He's the uh, Canadian professor of psychology at University of Toronto, a bit of an internet sensation. And, uh, of course, people are following him and watching his stuff, reading his stuff. And uh, he published a list of the 15 most influential books that shaped his intellectual development. Number one on the list, Brave New World. How about them apples? And so I want to give you a little bit of a caveat, a little bit of warning. I gave you this last week, and I want to continue on in this, reminding you of this. This is going to be a provocative series. This is going to push over some sacred cows and poke a few people. It's meant to do that. And the whole idea is not to try to get you thinking like me, but to get you thinking period, about some things, the sticky issues of life, the sticky issues of our world that we should be grappling with as Christians. Now, here's why it's so important for us, because what we do is we get bombarded from the left and from the right, and it's not necessarily true on either of that side. Maybe there's a third way, which I call, and many people call, a biblical worldview, looking at the world through the lens of Scripture, and that's what we're doing in this journey, and not very many people are doing it today, and because it's a little bit of a challenging thing to do it. But I love this because there's a, this verse in the Old Testament that says the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times, so they knew what to do to lead Israel. And I think the same is true today. We need to have people that understand our times, that have the ability to look at Scripture and then look at the world and say, this is what is going on in our world. And so I've provoked you a little bit. I know we've had some great discussions. That's what my, my, my goal is, to get people talking and thinking and debating this stuff. Nobody's got really mad at me. Maybe a little bit mad, but I'm okay with that. Because like Aldous Huxley said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you mad. And so here we're going to go. We're going to jump back into this. And last week or the first week, we talked about this. We talked about the social and uh, social stratification of the brave new world and how they were divided as people. And as a result, it led to a systemic discrimination. 
And as much as we would love to think that our world is this peaceful and agreeable place and everybody gets along, we kind of know that's not true, right? And I pointed out to you that we are more tribal and more divided than almost any time in history. It's sort of what's happened in our world. And we need to look at that and say, that's not the way it ought to be. Because what Jesus did is he came into a world very similar to this, a very divided world. And he invaded it with a singular message. And that was the message of love. And we talked about this last time, to love your, 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 your brother, to love your uh, neighbor, to love your enemy. And if you love those things, you could revolutionize your world. So that was the first week. And so today I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how freedom of speech is worth the risk. Freedom of speech is worth, worth the risk. When we look at freedom of speech, uh, we understand that in Western culture, we value it. It's one of our more, most treasured values, actually, and is really pretty exclusive to the Western world and lesser so in other parts of the world. The Canadian Constitution guarantees our freedom of speech. We have an American Constitution that actually calls freedom of speech, the First Amendment is what it is, an inalienable right. And what they mean by that was that it cannot be changed. You cannot legislate against it. And the reason they called it that was the framers of the Constitution in the U.S. believed that God had given us these rights of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, and that those things could not be taken away because God created man with free will, which is true. And I want you to think about this. Even God does not violate our free will. He gives you the right to think whatever you want, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. He won't stop you. Now, you will pay the consequences for that, but you're allowed to think and do and say anything you want. Now, Benjamin Franklin, he said this. He said that the freedom of speech was the principal pillar of a free society. And once freedom of speech, once that pillar crumbled, then tyranny would be erected on the ruins. And all you have to do is look at those closed nations. Look at those nations that don't believe in free speech like we do. Nations like China and Russia and North Korea and Iran. They're the most enslaved and, and, and coerced and manipulated and controlled population. If you control people's speech, you control those people. And so we have this book, Brave New World, where what people were allowed to have this sense of freedom centrally and carnally but they did not have freedom of speech. In fact, there was extreme censorship. And the two topics that were off topic entirely were history and religion. Why? Because history and religion will actually lead you to freedom. If you can know where you came from, then you can know where you're going. If you can know and have freedom of religion and talk about freedom of religion, then that truth will set you free. And we know all about that. And so that was the sort of essence of, of Brave New World. But you want to know great twist of irony, it became one of the most banned books in history. I want you to think about that. A book that was warning against the denser dangers of censorship becomes censored. And you're going to love this part of the story. Guess who censored it? The church. The church was the primary one. And the reason was, was because the book, and it's true, it sort of glorified uh, sex and drugs, but not for the purpose of glorifying it, but for actually revealing the dangers of sex and drugs, and then that, that, in fact, led to bondage. But I think the people who banned the book maybe never actually read the book. 
And I have a, an interesting sort of comparison to that. We have a church lending library here. And a few years ago, the, the people that run the library came to me and they said, Pastor Mark, we're having a big problem with people stealing books from the church library. And I said, well, they said, what, what should we do about it? And I said, well, nothing. If people are stealing books on holiness, maybe they need those books more than we do. <laughs> Let's just think about the irony of that. Right? It's like the two guys that stole the calendar. They each got six months. It's <laughs> a good one, isn't it? All right, so here's what we're going to do. I gave you, that's the introduction to today's message. We're going to launch right into it. We're in uh, Acts chapter 5, and let me just give you the background of this story because it's great. The church is on a roll. There is revival in Jerusalem. There's miracles. There's healings. There's signs and wonders. People are coming to Christ by the thousands. The disciples are right in the temple grounds preaching and doing these things, but the powers that be are not happy about it, and so they want to silence these people. They don't like what they're doing to Judea. So they arrest them and throw them into jail. And so they're sitting in jail and in the middle of the night, the angel shows up and leads them out. And so the next morning, the magistrates send for the disciples and they go to the cells and the cells are empty. The guards are there. The doors are locked. The people, the, the, the disciples are gone. Guess where they were? They went back to the temple and they were back in the temple preaching again. So they go and they arrest them again and they bring them before the council. And that's where we're going to pick this story up. So here it is. It says this, uh, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intent and bringing this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on the cross. I bet that went over really, really well. Uh, him God had exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Now, I hope you're following what's going on here. This whole story is a struggle for freedom of speech. They actually hadn't committed any crime. What had they actually done? They hadn't done anything. They just didn't like what they were saying. They were offended by what they were saying. They didn't like what they were saying. And so they, they arrested them. And here's what's interesting. You know, when it comes to this topic of freedom of speech, I bet you've probably never heard a message on this. Most people think the Bible is silent on freedom of speech. Guess what? The whole New Testament is a story of the struggle for freedom of speech. Isn't that what's going on here? They were commanded not to say these things and to preach in his name. And they said, we won't do it. We're going to obey God rather than man. And so we see the beginning of the struggle. But that wasn't the beginning because didn't Jesus have the same struggle? Didn't they spend the whole time trying to shut him up? What was Jesus actually convicted of at the end of his life? What was he crucified for? He had committed no crime. Even Pilate said, I wash my hands. I see no fault in this man. What was the issue? It was his freedom of speech that they were offended by the words he spoke. And he went to the cross. So then we see Jesus dealing with freedom of speech. We see the disciples here 
dealing with freedom of speech. And then you read the rest of the book of Acts. And what do you see? You see one encounter and one challenge to freedom of speech again and again and again. Namely, Paul the Apostle, every single city he went to, they were mad and offended and they beat him and they flogged him and they stoned him and they imprisoned him for preaching the gospel. It was all about freedom of speech. Even the four and a half years in lockdown that I preached about recently, lessons from lockdown, they never actually convicted him of a crime in four years because the only thing he was guilty of was speaking freely and offending people around him. And so when you begin to look at this story, when you begin to look at this journey, you discover something really fascinating is that really the Bible's about freedom of speech. Interesting, at least I find it interesting, that as Paul ventured north on his missionary journeys, he actually encountered less and less persecution as he went into the Greek cities. And I'll tell you why. Greece is the birthplace of modern democracy. It is the birthplace of freedom of speech. And as he ventured further up, the further north he went into the Greek cities, the more freedom he had to preach the gospel, the more freedom of speech he had. When he got to the city of Berea, do you remember what it said? It said the Bereans were more fair-minded and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. They didn't just reject him out of hand. They said, okay, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at that. And by the time he got to the city of Athens, I mean, it's incredible in Athens because he went, which was the capital of Greece, right? Because he actually ended up going right up to Mars Hill. And he was actually debating the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers right on their own territory. And they welcomed him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. It was an incredible thing. It said that he reasoned with them in the synagogues and he reasoned in the marketplace with the Gentiles. And you know, I've actually been to Mars Hill. You can go, if you ever go to Athens, you've got to visit Mars Hill. Here's a picture of it. It was an incredible place to think that this was the hill. This was the marketplace. This was the public forum where people debated all kinds of ideas. And that Paul stood right on those hills where we were standing. And he debated these guys. And to stand in that very place, we were there in 2007. I thought, this is an incredible experience to be able to be here where the gospel was preached and where it was so accepted by an openness to this thing we're talking about today called the freedom of speech. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to give you a little bit of a sociology lesson. Sociology 101. And we're going to look at how freedom of speech works. And this can be a little bit different than normal. And I'm going to do it using these graphs. And I'm going to start with the first one here. And the first one that you see here is, is this, of course, most people call this a bell curve. Uh, it's really called the, the normal distribution curve. And it's something from statistics. And you can graph anything and everything with it. And most people, when it comes to opinions, most people sort of are somewhere in the middle on things. And so, you know, the, on public opinion, whatever the subject might be. you got a bunch of people in the middle on this, and then you have the people on the outskirts of this. Either they approve or they disapprove strongly, and they are the outliers. And so if that's the, a particular subject, then there's the free speech curve. And the free speech curve, look at this next one, it genuinely fall, or genu- generally, generally, that's the word, generally follows public opinion. And so whatever the public opinion is, if we really have free speech, we can say whatever we want on the approve or disapprove side. So I'm going to give you an example, one that's really innocuous, one that's not going to get me into trouble. 
I'll give you ones that will get me into trouble later, okay? This one's not going to get you into trouble. It's about vegetables. So let's talk about the vegetable kale. We all know what kale is. And so here's kale. Uh, people are pretty divided on kale. There's people that, you know, most people know it's a good vegetable because it's good for you. But some people love it. They think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and it'll, you know, make you live longer, etc. There's other people on the other side and they think it's the worst thing ever and maybe it's good for you, but I'll never eat it because it tastes like green bitter cardboard. And uh, how many of you are for it? How many of you are against it? We're pretty much split right down the middle like I thought we, thought we would be. And so we can say whatever we want about kale. We have different opinions on it because guess what? Nobody really cares about kale. But if you start talking about something people actually care about, then this starts to change a little bit and the free speech graph begins to change a bit. So the next one I want to talk about is I want to talk about smoking. And so here we have smoking. This is in 1950. So my question is, smoking is okay. In 1950, it was pretty divided. There's people that, uh, you know, approved of it, people who disapproved of it. Most people were okay with it. It was sort of fine. It was whatever. And you remember, those of you who are old enough, remember that in the 50s, everybody smoked. I mean, you could smoke in a restaurant, on a plane, on a bus. You could smoke at work. You could smoke anywhere you wanted. And most people didn't know that there was anything wrong with smoking. Now, there was people that didn't like it. You know, they thought it was smelly and stinky and whatever and wouldn't do it. There was people that really loved it and couldn't live without it. But most people were pretty ambivalent about it because it was just part of life. So that was 1950. But then we discovered the health effects of smoking. And so if we look at modern day, let's say 220, that, that public opinion has shifted way over to the disapproved side. It's way, way, way over there. And I would say to the point where free speech has moved over with it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You can say whatever you want about a smoker today. You can call these people disgusting human beings. They smell, their clothes smell, their teeth are yellow, they're taxing the healthcare system, they're killing themselves, and everybody around them with their secondhand smoke. You can call them whatever name you want, and you will be just fine because everybody hates smokers. Now, I know, I know you're looking at me and going, you know, you would never say that about another soul on our planet. But because public opinion has shifted so far over, you can say whatever you want about smokers. Now, for the record, I don't feel that way about smokers. I think they are wonderful people, and smokers are always welcome in this church. They just can't smoke in this church. They have to smoke outside. Actually, they can't smoke outside. They have to smoke across the street. Actually, they can't smoke across the street. They have to smoke at home. Well, they probably can't smoke anywhere, but I still love them. <laughs> you get where I'm going with this, don't you? And so what happened is freedom of speech has moved with public opinion. This is really important to this discussion. Now, let's throw that graph up one more time so we can see it. How about those that actually advocate for the goodness of smoking? They do not really have freedom of speech, do they? They're not, you're not allowed to advertise. You're not allowed to talk about it. The tobacco manufacturers would love to talk about the Marlboro Man and how cool it is. And, you know, you've come a long way, baby, and all kinds of things. But you can't do it today. And if you are going to talk about smoking, you have to say and tell people it's going to kill them and put pictures of, you know, cancerous lungs on the picture, you know, the cover of the cigarette pack. And that's where our world has gone. And so we actually don't really have freedom of speech on something that is really out of public opinion today. So you're following this, right? So I've kind of painted a little picture. Most of you aren't mad at me yet. But let's talk about a sticky issue, a hot-button issue. 
something that people do have strong feelings about, do care about, and I'd rather not talk about this, but it's the best example for us. And I want to talk about same-sex marriage. And if we were to look at this graph, this was 1950. If you were looking at 1950, the majority of people actually disapproved of same-sex marriage. In fact, nobody, almost nobody talked about it. And so you could almost say whatever you wanted about it on the negative side, but on the positive side, those who were advocating in 1950 same-sex marriage probably end up in jail. They did not have freedom of speech on that subject. Now, everything changed in about 2010, that's what they say, that what happened, if you look at this next chart, what happened is it became pretty much split, pretty much even-even in about 2010. People were kind of 50% for, 50% against. And so what we had back in the early 2000s is we had a debate on this subject. And it was an awkward debate. I mean, it really was, but at least you were allowed to talk about it. And you could, you could give your opinion one side or the other, and that's how it went. And really, around 2010, the whole weight of this shifted. And I'll give you a really uh, interesting example, and it's Barack Obama. He was the president at the time, and in 2008, he said this. I'll throw it up on the screen again. He said, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of gay marriage. He said that in 2008. By 2012, only four years later, he says, I have concluded that it has come time for me to conclude or, or to affirm that uh, same-sex couples should be able to get mar- married. So in four years, his opinion had completely changed. His speech had completely changed. Why? Because public opinion had shifted, and he's a politician. That's why. And so I want to show it to you today. So if you were to look at the same graph today, we're now about 70% of North American population approves of same-sex marriage. It's, it's uh, legal in most, most Western jurisdictions at this point. And so if you're going to speak in favor of same-sex marriage, you're, you're quite free to do that. If you are to speak against it in today's culture then you're taking your life in your hands because somebody's going to call you a bigot or a homophobe and they'll call you names and they will shut you down. And so we don't really, even if we have a valid reason for it, we can't speak about it because uh, free speech, and this is not correct, free speech should not be following public opinion, but that's exactly what happens. And the reason I use these graphs is to demonstrate this to you. Now, here's the problem for us. It's because we are people who believe in the Bible and so we have a whole bunch of things that are culturally unpopular to talk about. And they're, and, and they're not just things about marriage. They're things about, about sexuality, and they're things about uh, sin, and there's things about drugs. And, you know, people don't actually like to hear that they're a sin, sinner. And, of course, to say and call somebody a sinner is actually practically tantamount to hate speech today. People don't like to be told that they might be going to hell. There's a whole bunch of unpopular things today that we're barely allowed to talk about. So here's what's happened. Pastors have become silent in the pulpit because they're afraid of public opinion. And so public opinion, even though we hold on to the beliefs of Scripture, that may be contrary to some of the culturally accepted values. Am I right? So they may be contrary to some of those things, but we can't talk about them because we have lost our freedom of speech on those things, especially if somebody just goes and labels us as a bigot or a sexist or this or that, and they use ad hominem insults to just insult us and call us names instead of having the free exchange of ideas, which is What a freedom of speech and a free society is all about. It's about the ability to be able to discuss things openly. We're not allowed to do that. And and many pastors, they're afraid people are going to be offended, for good reason, in the pulpit, 
So they're no longer talking about these issues, and they have been silenced on a whole bunch of them. You say, but Pastor Mark, what's wrong with you? You keep talking about these things. Well, I have a personality disorder. I've told you that before. It's my ace in the hole. I don't really care what people think about me. It's worked very well for me. I want to tell you a story about this, all kidding aside. So a few years ago, when we were in the midst of this debate in Canada, I decided to wade into it, but I decided to do it a little bit different. And I decided I was going to preach a message uh, all about and in defense of traditional marriage, something you've all heard me talk about many times. And so I was going to preach this message, defend traditional marriage. Guess what? I never actually mentioned same-sex marriage, not once, in the whole message. But I did make this defense, and I went back to the book of Genesis, and I talked about how God created man in his image, male and female, and how marriage was a union between one man and one woman. And so it seemed pretty safe to me, and yet I got a complaint when it aired on television across the land. I got a complaint to one of the stations to the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. It was an official complaint. And so the broadcaster came back to me and said, we have a a complaint, we have to investigate this message. I said, well, go at it. As far as I'm concerned, there was no hate speech in it. So they went back, and this is what they had to do. They had to have a whole bunch of lawyers sit in a room and watch my message together. And so then they phoned me up after they watched my message. I said, so what did you think? They said, well, to tell you the truth, the lawyers were killing themselves laughing, especially when you stole that stupid story about how you bought your wife a trash can for Mother's Day. What is wrong with you? Your wife should be putting an official complaint against you. (laughs) I said, I said, true enough, true enough, I get it. And they said, well, they reviewed it and there was nothing that was against the ethics code, nothing that was hate speech. But here's what we want to do. We don't really like this controversy. So we're wondering if, Pastor Mark, you would mind not talking about anything that could possibly offend anybody. I said, you're kidding me, right? How can you possibly say anything publicly without offending somebody? You know better than this. And I said, you know what? You should actually be defending me on this. You shouldn't be trying to silence me. You should be defending me. Because if I lose my freedom of speech, you lose your freedom of speech. You're a broadcaster, for goodness sakes. I was ticked. I was hot with him. He said, well, you make a good point. So then he says, how about this? How about you put a disclaimer on your your program saying that the views of this program are not necessarily the views of the broadcaster. I said, don't you think people know that? Do you think if the prime minister says something stupid on the news, people are going to blame the CBC for it? I think they know who the idiot is, right? And I think people know if I say something stupid or something they don't like, they're not going to blame you for it. And I said, so if you want a disclaimer, you put it on your time, not on mine. So they did. They put the disclaimer on. And, of course, I said, you know, we pay for the airtime. Why should I pay for that? Precious airtime, 10 seconds or whatever. So they put it on for about a year. And even they got sick of it and stopped doing it. So anyway, I wanted to give you that little picture of what we're dealing with here. We are dealing with the fact that we really don't actually have the freedom of speech that we think that we have. And freedom of speech, let me, under, let me explain something about the freedom of speech laws. They are designed to per, protect and defend the unpopular ideas, right? Popular ideas don't need freedom of speech laws. It's the unpopular ideas that need to be protected. Here's what Noam Chomsky said about it. He's more of a liberal intellect, uh, and here's what he said. 
If we do not believe in freedom of speech for those that we despise, then we do not believe in freedom of speech at all. And Voltaire, the atheist who hated the church, he said this, I do not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. See, people a lot smarter than you and a lot smarter than me have studied these things and have realized that if we don't have freedom of speech, we are in big trouble as a culture. And we have to defend the freedom of speech even for people who have ideas that we do not agree with. And I'll give you an example of something that's going on. I know most of you have seen that. That in a lot of university campuses around North America, there's these protests. Every time they bring in a speaker that the student body doesn't like, they protest them, particularly universities like University of Berkeley in California. This is one of the worst. This university it, by itself spends $600,000 every single year on security for the student protests of speakers coming into the university. And so they'll have a, a particular speaker come in, let's say someone like Ann Coulter is a real life example, and she was going to speak. They have riots. I don't know if you've seen the pictures. They have literally riots, and they're burning effigies, and they're shouting uh, insults and curses and swearing and yelling, and they have shut down these speakers. And then, of course, when the speaker has to leave and can't present and can't come on campus, they think they've won a victory. And what they don't realize is they've actually lost Because when you dismantle someone else's freedom of speech, you are dismantling your own. And John Stuart Mill, who wrote the book on liberty in 1851, this is what he said about it. He said, if speech is free and the search of knowledge is unfettered, then eventually the truth will rise to the surface. And that's what freedom of speech is. You you put the ideas into the public forum And you let the best ideas win. And you know what? As Christians, I don't want special treatment. All I want to do is be able to debate the issues without people calling me names. All I want to be able to do is to be able to state the case that there was a creator God who's done this amazing, wonderful thing for mankind. And that there is this great gift that he has for them. And when they won't let us share that message, that's a desperate world in which we live in. And I know immediately people bring this up and they say, but Pastor Mark, what about hate speech? You can't allow hate speech. You're going to be shocked by my answer on this. You have to allow hate speech. Because who's going to decide whether something is hate speech or not? Who's the person? Who's the person who draws that line? Do you want the government doing that? (laughs) I got you on that first one, didn't I? Do you want the government doing it? Do you want the bureaucrat doing it? Do you want Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook deciding what's hate speech and not? But that's exactly what's happening when they shut down the former president and they told him that he no longer, and his account was banned for life. Are you kidding me? Do we really want big tech determining who can say what? That's a desperate world. That's a world that I don't want to live in where, where we have these powerful billionaires deciding who can say what. And I want you to understand this, that it it puts this great sense of jeopardy on us. I want to tell you a little story about this, about hate speech, because nobody's in favor of hate speech. Don't misunderstand me. We abhor the things these people say. What we do, though, is we fight for the right of them to say it, because their stupid ideas are not going to carry the day. And the example of this would be, it's a Canadian story, is, is Jim Keekstra. Some of you remember this story. He was an Alberta school teacher who was a Holocaust denier. 
And unfortunately for him and for his students, he was teaching that in his classroom. He actually ended up going to court, ended up all the way in the Supreme Court. He goes to the Supreme Court being tried on hate, char- hate speech charges. He ended up being convicted. He was found guilty of hate speech. And so that's the story, a little bit of the background on that. And I was recently, uh, went to the Canadian uh, Human Rights Museum right here in Winnipeg. And uh, I hadn't been before. I was a little late to the game. Went. It's a, great, it's a great museum if you ever want to go there. Great displays. They've done a nice job of it. And when you get up towards the top of the building, because you kind of move upward in, in this fashion as you get up to the higher, they have this display of Jim Keekstra. And it's this big circular station. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And there's these videos in the middle that are playing, and they tell a story of Jim Keekstra. And then they ask this group of people, whoever's there, whatever random group of people you're with, and they ask this question, and they say, does Jim Keekstra, or did Jim Keekstra, have the right to be a Holocaust denier? And I pushed yes. You had to push a button, and I pushed yes. And then they put up, I wasn't expecting this, then they put up the results of that group. And there was 15 people there, and I was the only person in that whole group that said yes. And I thought to myself, that's where this culture is going, where people think that it's okay for us I mean, if somebody wants to deny the Holocaust, they're wrong. But you know what? We have people who don't think that the world is round either. They're flat earthers. You don't, you don't put them in jail for being stupid. Uh, you let people have whatever opinions they want. And I looked around this group and I thought, I'm the only one here who thinks there's something wrong with this picture. And, and just in case you think I'm way off base on this and you would have voted the other way, the Supreme Court voted four to three. It was a split decision. It could have just as easily gone the other way. Four to three. Three of those Supreme Court justices believed that he did have the right to say those things. Everybody agrees that he shouldn't have been doing it in schools. So I'm trying to paint this little picture of you. So you get, you get a little bit of a snapshot here. So now I've kind of confused most of you. So let me just bring it down to what Jesus said about this. You'll be a little bit surprised. And so we're going to look at it. It's right... Uh, uh, in, also in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus said. Verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you also. Remember what Jesus said? He said, woe to you is when, when all speak, men speak well of you. And here he's saying that blessed are you when they speak evil against you. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying there will be hate speech in this world. And guess who it'll be directed at? You. And he says, he didn't, he didn't condemn hate speech. He didn't say they shouldn't be saying this. He said they're going to say it. The bigger question is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to deal with it? And he told us how to do it. He told us, the scripture says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And when we speak the truth, here's the most important thing I'm going to say to you all day. We need to fight for the truth. There's no doubt about that. But when you speak the truth, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And see, that's the greatest weapon that we have. We're going to fight for freedom of speech. We're going to stand up for the right to say what we're going to say. We're going to say it. But what we're going to do is we're going to speak the truth in love. 
We're not going to criticize and condemn and run down people. We're not going to call people names. That is not how the church responds. Because we are going to have hate speech. You can't legislate against it. People's thoughts are going to be their thoughts. And if they hate us, they hate us. There's nothing we can do about that except we can respond in the opposite spirit. And the opposite spirit is love. So I want to finalize this, conclude with one story that's a great story. I think that'll sum all this up. So in the American Revolution, the American War of Independence, there was a pastor by the name of Peter Miller. And Peter Miller actually uh, lived in Pennsylvania. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was a friend of Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson gave him the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and he asked him to translate. He translated into seven different languages. So this was one smart guy. And in his town where he lived, he had an enemy by the name of Michael Whitman. And for whatever reason, Michael Whitman hated Peter Miller. And he did everything to persecute him. He criticized him. He slandered him. He spoke against him. He called him names. He spat on him in public. And Peter Miller understood something about freedom of speech. He understood something about godliness, both. And so he did nothing in retaliation. Now, Michael Whitman owned the local hotel. And he actually was a spy, as it turned out, for the British during the American War of Independence. And while he was in his hotel one night, he carelessly spoke about the fact. And two American spies overheard him. He eventually got arrested. He got tried on treason. And George Washington sentenced him to hang. When Peter Miller, his enemy heard about this, he walked 60 miles through the snow with his cane because he was an elderly man by then. He walked 60 miles through the snow to Valley Forge and met George Washington. Remember, he was well-connected and he pleaded for the life of Michael Whitman. And George Washington said, I cannot grant you a pardon for your friend. To which Peter Miller said, my friend, he's the worst enemy I have in this entire world. And George Washington said that sheds a different light on this entirely. If you're pleading for the life of your enemy, I will grant your request. And he wrote out a pardon and he handed it to Peter Miller. Now, only a couple of hours later, he was about to go to the gallows or to be hung. And so Peter Miller had to walk another 50 miles to Westchester and he got there just as he was being led up the ramp and Michael Whitman saw him and said oh here comes my enemy Peter Miller to gloat in the vindication and the death of his enemy and he said I haven't come to gloat about anything I have brought you a pardon to save your life and he literally, by minutes, like a television movie, saved this man's life. Michael Whitman could not believe it. He embraced his enemy, Peter Miller. The two journeyed home together and were lifelong friends after that. You see, that's what this whole message is about, is that, that we have something more powerful than what the world has to offer. We have this thing called forgiveness. We have this thing called love. We will experience hate speech. We will. And we've got to let people say what they want to say so that they'll let us say what we want to say. And we will do it in one way and one way only. We will overcome evil with good and we will speak the truth in love because Freedom of speech is worth the risk. I want to ask all those online, 
I know this was a very different message than I would normally preach, but it's a very important message for us to understand some of the big picture stuff. And I know there are people listening right now that have never made this decision to invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And for whatever reason, you're listening for this very first time, and maybe I've challenged you, maybe I've provoked you a little bit, but I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus loves you so much. He came to this earth to die on the cross for your sin. And if you have never made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity to do it today. And there's a little hand that goes up on your screen, and all you do is you click on that hand, and by doing so, you're saying, yes, I want to invite Christ into my life. And the second thing you do is you repeat this prayer after me. And those in the room are going to say it with me, and I'm going to say it with you online. And so let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I confess I've been a sinner, walking in my own way, doing my own thing, exercising my free will. But today I submit it to you because you died on the cross for my sin, rose again on the third day, and you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.